0: All right, uh, Jeremiah 29. We've called 2022 a year of pursuing peace. We always pick a theme for the year. So that has been our theme this year. And a big part of calling that theme uh, for this year was uh, coming out of the last couple of years and just some of the, the challenges, the struggles of pandemic and everything that went through that and realizing that, oh, some of us walked through that very peacefully. Most of us, I think, struggled with peace in there somewhere. And so in reflecting on all of that, How do we maintain our peace, whatever we're going through, whether it's a wonderful season, whether it's a challenging season, where do we find God's peace? How do we hold on to that? And a lot of the struggle of peace in the last couple of years was just that everything was very political, right? It was very politicized. And whatever your views were on certain things, there was just a tendency in that time for people to divide. There was a tendency to to look at people on the other side as if they were enemies. And as that was happening uh, through pandemic stuff, there was also a very contentious American election that went on that really affected the whole world. And, And certainly Canada got sucked into a lot of that. And with that, there was Black Lives Matter elements going on and protests and riots and all sorts of things. So it was a very tense, time politically these last few years. And as we are jumping into the Word of God today, we're going to spend the morning talking about politics. And we're going to do it now. I've been wanting to preach this message for quite a while, and I've been waiting on it for a while. And the main reason I've been waiting on it was I actually wanted to preach it in a not- particularly tense moments, and so we don't have an election coming up or anything, and and we're not going through the COVID stuff in the same way. So I didn't want, when I preached this, it to be in a particularly tense moment. I don't want anyone thinking today that this is about uh, endorsing any particular politics or any leaders or parties or positions or anything like that. That's not what this is about. Um, That's not where we're going this morning. Um, I have a friend uh, named J.L., and he works at a Bible college in New York, and a couple of weeks ago, he had asked me to, to zoom in from here uh, into his pastoral theology class, and he wanted to uh, have his students just talk to a, a real-life pastor, someone who was actually on the front lines of ministry, and so we were doing sort of a Q&A with his class, and one of the things we ended up talking about was some of the difference between Canadian church and American church, because his students are primarily American And one of the things that he was saying was, in an American church, if you're visiting a church for the first time, it is very common to go to the hub or whatever the equivalent of the hub. And your first questions are not primarily what's your theological faith statement, but it's where do you stand on these particular political issues? Where does the church stand on these things? And that's going to be a significant part of whether I attend the church or not. And then the theology comes almost second. And so we were talking about sort of the differences there and and where we kind of landed, and I I do agree with this, was that the American church is probably maybe too wrapped up in earthly politics. And the Canadian church is perhaps not engaged enough in what's going on around us and have been kind of happy to step back. And I'm glad we're not the american church just to be clear that's just my opinion i'm glad it's not all consuming in that way and yet at the same time there has to be a place for christ followers to to speak up there has to be a place to let our light shine there has to be a place to stand for truth there has to be a place for all of these things and so i've shared the story before i was pastoring at a different church in uh, 2008 and barack obama got elected and I was saying to a lady in our church, you know, regardless of however you feel about the politics of this thing, um, I said, this has got to be a big deal if you're an African-American. Like, this has to be a big deal. Coming from slavery and all sorts of civil rights abuses and all sorts of racism, um, I would think this is a hopeful day if you're an African-American, regardless of politics. And she, I think, was acknowledging that point. But her counterpoint was, this will be the end of America. And again, this isn't about any particular opinion or whatever, but her opinion was that this was going to be the end of America. And she was despairing. Like, she really was despairing. And I have not forgot that moment. And I see that pattern repeated over and over again as elections happen in Canada or happen in the States, where Christians can get wrapped up in it to the point where we really do believe that whoever is in power is going to be the the beginning of a country or the end of a country or the beginning of, of salvation for the state of Christianity or the end of the state of Christianity or the end of freedom for Christianity. And we see that happen too in these conversations. And so there is certainly a track record in history of where God has used politicians to do good things, where God has used biblically even pagans politicians, even anti-Israel politicians that God would use for his good and for his purposes. There is a track record in church history of where God has used Christians to do good things in the political realm, primarily in areas like slavery and in areas like poverty and other areas of justice, maybe most famously people like Martin Luther King who stood up against racism partly out of their conviction of faith. And they fought against it in a very Christ-like way, and they helped shift the the tone and the mood of the culture and and actually transformed hearts and transformed views on this thing. So God can absolutely use Christians in this world. And yet there's also a long track record of the worldly political system corrupting Christians and corrupting the church along the way. And so there's a sweet spot we got to find, There's a sweet spot there that we need to figure out. And so here at Meadowbrook Church, and you hear me talk about this every week. Our goal, our plan is helping people take their next steps with Jesus. Wherever you're at in your faith journey, if you're an 80-year-old believer who's walked with Jesus your whole life, if you're a newer believer, if you're not a believer yet, and you're here and you're just checking things out, our goal is to help you take some next steps. We're here to come alongside you, to cheer you on, to guide and support you in that. And we focus on that in three ways, upward, inward, and outward. Upward, we want to be taking our next steps in our walk with Jesus, in our knowledge of him in our communion with him, in our relationship with him. We want to be taking our next steps inwardly as Jesus changes us, as he transforms us to make us more like himself. And we want to be taking our next steps outwardly as we love our neighbor, as we love our enemy, as we serve others, as we bring this gospel to the world. It never stops just inward with ourselves. It's always an outward expression of faith. And when it comes to the political stuff, these things all kind of tie in together, right? Out of our relationship with God and what he's doing with us and how we're engaging in the world around us, all of these things connect. And so I want us thinking about that as we jump into our text today. So we're in Jeremiah 29. This is perhaps an unusual text to talk about. And this is going to be just kind of a launching point because we're going to just fire through tons of scripture this morning. So Jeremiah 29, in context... Israel has just been invaded, and they have been scattered. So God had warned Israel, uh, if you continue in your sin, if you continue in your idolatry, you will lose the promised land. And foreigners will come in and they will take over the promised land and they will scatter you amongst the nations. And that's exactly what happened after years of warning, after decades of sin, after decades of defiance against God's word. Nations came in and took over Israel and kicked all of the people out and scattered them amongst the empires. And so as this is happening, um, Israel's being scattered, God was not yet done with israel of course and god continues to speak to israel and even though it was all happening because of their sin and because of their rebellion god is still loving his people he is still bringing hope to his people he is still working out his redemption amongst his people and so that's the context israel has just been taken out into captivity and then jeremiah 29 begins this is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiakim and the queen mother, the court officials, and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elasa, son of Shaphan, and to Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, Whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It, the letter, said, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon Build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. And also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And then he goes on to to give more instruction and to talk about, um, yeah, just make sure you're listening to God's prophets and everything. Jump down to verse 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And that's kind of a meme-worthy bumper sticker scripture that gets used a lot. And it's important that we understand the context of that particular verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. It's in this context of Israel, even in your rebellion, even in your sin, even where you have turned against the Lord, even when you are now reaping the consequences of God's discipline, his judgment upon your sin, even then, I know the plans I have for you the redemptive heart of our Heavenly Father, that even though you've screwed up and you're paying the price for that, even then, I will make this right. I will make this right. I will redeem you. I will bring you back. So that's just going to be a bit of a springboard today because as Israel is sent out into exile amongst a pagan culture, God says to them, settle down and prosper and live your lives. Right? Like, don't, don't just wait to come back because you're going to be there for a while. So wherever I am taking you from the promised land, wherever you are, settle down and plant your gardens and have your families and seek the good of the place in which I plant you. Seek the prosperity of that place. And exiles is a term that Peter will use in 1 Peter chapter 1. When he's writing to the church, when he's writing to Christians, when he's writing to you and me, Peter says, hey, exiles. Who are scattered. He's tying into this Old Testament picture. Because we Christians, like Israel in the Old Testament, we don't have a land that is our own. We too are scattered amongst the nations. We too are longing for a promised land, not a literal one, but a heavenly one. We too are temporarily strangers in a strange land. And the advice from Jeremiah to the exiles where the Lord speaks still stands for us as we live in exile, as we live as strangers here on earth, as we live without a land to call our own per se, as we live looking forward to heaven, we too are exiles in a pagan culture. And the call upon us is the same. Our job is to to settle down, to live our lives, to not compromise anything we believe, but to live out faithfulness before the Lord and to hopefully influence what is around us. As Israel goes off into Babylon, the best example, example we see of this is Daniel. Right, Daniel, living in a pagan culture, living in a pagan government, doesn't compromise his biblical convictions even a little bit, but stands for the Lord and speaks for the Lord and works within the pagan culture, works within the pagan government to speak God's truth, to stand for God's truth without compromising anything. That is our job now. When we're in a world that doesn't acknowledge Jesus, when we're in a political system that does not acknowledge Jesus, when we are exiles in this world, our job as exiles is to hold to God's truth, to speak God's truth, to live out God's truth in the system that we are in. And as we do that, we let our light shine. As we do that, we let the truth of God come out. As we do that, we seek the good of the land that we live in. We seek the prosperity of Leamington and Ontario and Canada. We seek the good. And as that happens, we are also blessed by that as well. And as we jump into this political conversation this morning, we're going to focus from here on out uh, just on New Testament stuff. And sometimes in this conversation we say, well, what about Israel? Israel was obviously a, a kingdom and it was obviously political and there was government and there was laws and there was rules. But the reason we're not going to go there today is because the church is not Israel. We are distinct from Israel. And when Jesus comes and establishes his church, when he arrives on earth and says the kingdom of heaven is now here and the church is going to be the one to advance this kingdom as the spirit and the gospel move through the church, he doesn't actually say set up a government. He doesn't actually say do this like Israel did. And so we love Israel, we are part of Israel's family, but we are distinct from them as well. The other tricky part in this conversation is the Bible in no way Uh, speaks to the issue of what does it mean to be a Christian in a democracy because democracy was not a thing at that time, right? There are kings, there are rulers, there are dictators, there are empires. And so the Bible specifically in the time that it's written doesn't say, hey, so here's how you should engage in a democratic society because a democratic society was just not their world at the time. And so that being the case, some people would look at that and say, well, the Bible never tells me to vote, therefore I'm never going to vote. Another way to look at it is to say the Bible doesn't speak to the internet either, but we all have phones right? And so what we do in those cases is say, what principles does the Bible teach us to help us navigate things that it might not specifically speak to? And so we are living in a democratic society. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly how to navigate that, but there are certainly biblical principles that tell us what we can do as we live this out. And so we're going to be looking, we're going to jump through a ton of scripture. Um, If you're writing things down, you're going to be writing like crazy today, but this will all be on YouTube. You can go back and listen to it again. And we're just going to be focusing on what did Jesus and the apostles teach us about what it means to be a Christ follower in relation to our earthly political systems, our our governing authorities, and what does that mean for how we live out our lives. So in a perfect world, here's what's going to happen today. Ready? We're going to learn or relearn how to be faithful exiles In a world that doesn't acknowledge Jesus, how to engage with a a broken and worldly political system without letting the political system corrupt us or compromise us, which it has a long history of doing as we let our light shine, as we stand on God's word, as we speak out the truth, and as we are faithful witnesses of Jesus in this world. And we're going to solve it today and never have to talk about it again. And then you're going to go from here and spread God's word, and all other Christians are going to get it as well. And then we're going to figure out what's the sweet spot that we are walking in as we walk out faithfully our call to be a Christ follower. So again, we're just going to walk through a bunch of scripture today that speaks to these issues. So what does the Bible say about earthly politics and what it means to be a Christ follower there as we go through that? Number one, Jesus is Lord. And Jesus is King. And so we would acknowledge that as part of our theology, that is our faith statement, but make no mistake, Jesus is Lord and Jesus is King is a political statement as much as it is a theological one. Because if Jesus is Lord, if Jesus is King, that means that ultimately Caesar is not Lord and Caesar is not King. It means that we say there's actually a higher power than any earthly power. And so we, we honor our government, and we'll get to those scriptures well as well. We honor the earthly leaders that God has put into place, but we also make no mistake as Christ followers that there is a power above all powers, there is a king above all kings, there is a lord above all lords. And so we, we start there first and foremost. And and we kind of lose this, I think, in Canada, because Canada has been very welcoming and accepting of Christianity since it began. And so in the culture, people might not agree with this statement, but there is room for it, certainly, for us to say this with freedom in this culture. But in the first century, when the first Christians began to say, Jesus is Lord or Jesus is King, that got them in a lot of trouble very quickly. Because Caesar does not like his authority being challenged. And so in Jesus is Lord, that is a faith statement, that is a biblical belief, of course, of his divinity and of his lordship above all things. But when we say Jesus is Lord, when we say Jesus is King, the subtext is King above all other earthly kings and Lord above all other earthly lords. He is King over Canada. He is Lord over Canada. He's Lord over Prime Minister Trudeau, he's Lord over Joe Biden. He's Lord over Vladimir Putin. He is above all of those things. And so we start with that confessional statement. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. In Canada, that statement doesn't get you into trouble at the moment uh, in the way that it does in some other places in this world. When you say, just so we're all clear, we'll honor our earthly governments to a point, which we'll talk about today, but none of that compares to Jesus Christ. Jesus is over all of it. He is the one we're following far above any other earthly rulers. Our allegiance is to him first and foremost. The story comes out of Luke chapter 3, 19 and 20. When John the Baptist rebuked Herod the Tetrarch, that's Herod the king, Because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. Prophets have a bad rap. Sometimes people say, like, I wish I was a prophet. I'm like, did you read the Bible? Did you read the story? Because it's an amazing calling, and there is a high price that gets paid. Most of the Old Testament prophets were persecuted. Most of the New Testament apostles and prophets were persecuted. So it is a wonderful thing, but make sure you know what you're signing up for. If you're starting to pray, Lord, make me like a prophet. Make me like an apostle. So John the Baptist is a prophet that preceded Jesus, and he rebukes King Herod because Herod marries his brother's wife. You're not allowed to do that. That is against God's law. You can't marry your sister-in-law. And so John is speaking that to Herod along with other evil things. We don't know what those things are, but Herod was not a good guy. And so John the Baptist, full of the Spirit, full of God's Word, is standing up and saying, this should not happen. God does not want this. This is not what God's word says. And as a consequence, he gets thrown into jail. As a further consequence, he will ultimately be executed. But we learn from this, and we see this in other parts. Jesus would certainly have engagement with the earthly authorities, and the apostles would as well, that it is part of a a biblically faithful calling to speak the truth to power. It's part of a biblically faithful calling to speak up about what is right and what is wrong. If we don't, who else will? So there is a place for us to say, hey, we believe in God's word. We believe this is truth. We believe this is sin. That is what the prophets have always done, and, and they paid a price for that. And so John the Baptist is standing up for what God's word clearly says. He's paying a price for that, but he's setting for us an example that part of our job in a biblically faithful calling is to speak the truth to power. And Anabaptists have always valued the separation of church and state in the sense of understanding these are two distinct realms. There's there's the church and there's the state. Uh, They don't need to be together. We don't see a place in the New Testament biblically where they come together. And so we value that they're separate. They have different roles. And so we're not going to try and merge them together because it often goes bad when they do. And yet Anabaptists have often gone further and further the other way where they say we're just not going to engage at all. We're not going to vote at all. We're not going to speak up at all. We're not going to petition at all. We're just going to remove ourselves entirely from the political conversation. And I would argue, in a democracy, that's actually not our job, especially. Because in democracy, we're invited to participate in the process, we're invited to vote. We're invited to petition. We're invited to make our voice heard. And so, again, when Daniel goes off into exile in Babylon, uh, he's invited to engage in a pagan political system, and he does. Because that's a place where he can let his light shine. That's a place where he can speak truth. That's a place where he can stand for the Lord. So we are invited to engage in a democratic process here. We're invited to vote. And when we don't vote and when we don't speak up, we're actually just then ceding the whole conversation to everybody else. And we don't have an opportunity to speak up for here's what I think is right. This is one of the ways when we vote that we can look to, to work for the good of the city in which God has planted us, right? Where we can look at, at the issues and the policies and the plans and we can actually speak up and take a stand and make our voice heard for what we think will be for the good of what is around us. And so we have a a call, biblically, to speak up about what we believe, to speak up about what is good and what is evil, to speak up about whatever we feel God is showing us from his word. When we're silent on these things, when we don't vote on these things, when we don't let the government be known uh, how we're feeling about these things, then we're just letting the whole conversation go to other people, and then they will get to decide on this stuff. So if we're invited in to the conversation, then let us participate in the conversation. Let us be a part of that. I don't know what happened, whether this was just kind of where I was at or whether it's an inevitable part of getting older, but I write way more letters to politicians than I ever did as a younger man, especially in these last few years. And part of that is just, I just want them to know where I'm at. And the odd time during the pandemic, I actually think we did influence them a little bit. Sometimes we would talk about stuff and they would shift stuff to give us a bit more freedom than we had last time. That did happen. Sometimes it didn't shift anything at all. But I think it's important to say, hey, I feel this way. This is where I'm at and this is what I think is right. Right? And if they don't agree, then they don't agree. But I I don't want to be silent on things that we really should be speaking up on. So we have a call to speak the truth to power. We don't want to be silent. And through our silence, actually, we're not actually being silent at all because we're actually giving the conversation to other people. And so we don't want to be doing that. Mark 12, 15 to 17. They, the Pharisees, come to Jesus and said, Teacher, We know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. It's kind of a a backhanded insult of a compliment in there. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? They're trying to trap him here. So Jesus knows their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius, this is a form of money, and let me look at it. They brought the coin, and he asked them, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. So next step in the political process, we pay our taxes. Amen! Hallelujah! We pay our taxes, because Jesus says that we should. Jesus also making the distinction. There's a distinction between Caesar's kingdom and God's kingdom. And, and we give to Caesar what Caesar needs, and we give to God what we owe God. And we don't have to conflate those two things together. But they're trying to trap him. They're, they really must have thought that they had him on this one. Because the Jewish people hated paying taxes to Rome, because Rome was a pagan empire that had taken them over. Rome was full of idol worshipers. Rome was killing the Jewish people and violently oppressing them. Rome was, was horrible. They were evil, undeniably. And they were in charge And so Rome came in when they took over and said, all right, you're going to pay us taxes like everybody else pays. And so they really think they've got Jesus here because they come and say, Jesus, should we pay our taxes to the evil, pagan, violent empire that is oppressing God's people? And if he says yes, then the crowd is going to turn against him because the Jewish people hate the Romans. And if he says no, then he's officially a traitor. And the Romans can come and take him out. It's a good plan. Like if you're trying to trap a guy, that's a pretty good. They must have just for like hours got together and figured this all out. And then every time they tried to do it, Jesus just wouldn't play their game. He just found a way to answer the question perfectly that didn't give them what they wanted. And so he says, yes, we are going to give to Caesar what we're giving to Caesar. We're going to remain just as committed to God as we do that. And then it's like, oh, trap, disarm, Jesus wins. And so we pay our taxes. We pay our taxes, and that's one of the things that we do, and that's part of how we contribute to the common good of the city in which we are living, is we pay our taxes. Jesus is actually saying, yes, pay your taxes to the idol-worshipping, evil, pagan empire. Pay it to them, right? And it doesn't mean he's endorsing anything that they're doing, but he's saying, yes, we will pay our taxes even to them. Consider this. Jesus is saying, pay the taxes, the money for which is going to buy wood that I am nailed to one day. That's going to pay the soldiers who are going to nail me there one day. We don't pay taxes because we agree with what they're doing. We don't pay taxes because we're endorsing things or even endorsing the government. We pay taxes because Jesus did and Jesus tells us to. And so that is part of what we do in obedience to the scripture. Moving on. A little later in John chapter 6 verse 15 it says Jesus knowing that the crowd of followers intended to come and make him king by force withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So Jesus is getting some fame. He is getting a lot of uh, just buzz around him. People are starting to think maybe this is the Messiah. And a crowd gets overexcited, and they're going to come, and they're actually going to make him a literal king. They're going to take him, put him in Jerusalem by force. We're going to overthrow the Romans if we have to, but we're going to make Jesus the political ruler of the kingdom. And Jesus' response to that is to run away. Because Jesus didn't come to set up a political kingdom here on earth. Jesus didn't come to set up a political kingdom. And so as Jesus lives, he is setting up the kingdom of God, but it is not connected to the political kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is showing up in a completely different way. And sometimes when Christians engage in politics, we can get this view of we just need to get the right Christians in power and they will pass the right laws and then the kingdom will be here. And that kind of makes sense, and at the same time, we know, again, we've been at this for 2,000 years, we know that Christians passing laws doesn't actually change a person's heart because man's political system doesn't change a person's heart. And that's not to say, again, we shouldn't speak up for what's right. That's not to say we should be silent on things, but Jesus didn't come to set up a political system. If that was the best way to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish, then why didn't he do it? Why didn't he just come and say, all right, set me up as the king, and then I'll go and I'll pass all the laws and everyone will be Christian. Like, that's just not what he did. When Jesus was building the kingdom of heaven, he's honestly, he's doing it person by person. He's doing it as he engages with people's hearts. He's inviting people to come. He's not forcing anybody to come. He's sharing the truth and bringing an invitation. Not everybody is choosing to follow him, and he's actually not freaking out about that he is offering the invitation and so we're again i see this more in america than in canada but this view of we got to get christians to the top and get them everywhere and then we will truly be a christian nation if that really was the way of christ then why isn't it the way of christ Why does he not engage in that road at all? That's not to say that Christians can't be elected and let their light shine. That's not to say that we can't be light shiners everywhere, including in the political world. But that's just not what Jesus did. That's just not the example that he set. And so we don't need to follow in that way because he didn't. That wasn't how he did things. A little later in John 18, 36 and 37, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth, and everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So far beyond any earthly kingdom, Jesus is about truth. Right, And so he's not aligning his truth with any particular earthly kingdom or any particular political party. He says, anyone who has truth, they're on my side. That is what I am here to do. And he makes very clear, again, the kingdom of heaven is not the same as the kingdoms of this world. And so Pilate's trying to figure out, is this guy a threat to my throne? And is he a threat to Rome? Is he a threat to the political power system? And Jesus is, but he's not in the way that they think. He's not leading a rebellion. He's not going to try and get Pilate kicked out. He's not going to go and eliminate Caesar and take up that literal throne. But Jesus is talking about a kingdom, and he's making very clear, but it's not this kingdom. It's not this flesh and blood kingdom. It's not this political kingdom. Jesus says, that is not what I am about. He says, if it were what I'm about, then we'd be at war right now, right? But the kingdom of heaven is not one that advances by violence. That is not the way of Jesus. My kingdom is from another place. It is from heaven. So just to make crystal clear that the kingdom of heaven is not the same as the kingdom of Canada or the kingdom of America or the kingdom of Britain or any. Earthly kingdom. There is no earthly kingdom that represents God's kingdom perfectly. There's no political party that represents God's kingdom perfectly. They are not one and the same. They are distinct and they are different. In a different take on the conversation with Pilate from John's gospel, John 19, 10, and 11, Pilate says, Do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. That's a provocative statement. Don't you know I have all the power? Jesus says, you don't actually have any power. You have power, but you only have power because God has given that power to you. God has set all the authorities in our life in place. And we'll come back to that again. God sets everybody in place. God sets everybody in place. And so that's easy to celebrate when it's the candidate we like. And when it's the candidate we don't like, then, oh, God, why have you forsaken us? But again, read your Bible. God works through evil pagans all the time. And so can we have enough faith and have enough trust to say God sets the authorities in place? I think that's biblically unquestionable. I don't think you can come to any other biblical conclusion than God sets and allows every single earthly ruler to be in place. That being the case, I don't need to have my faith fall apart if someone's in power that I don't like. Or if there's someone in power that I am worried about, my faith doesn't need to be shaken. Because God can work through anybody, and biblically, he does. And so we see this pattern often amongst conservative Christians, which is conservative political people get elected, and we rejoice, and we say, thank you, Jesus. You have answered our prayers. And then if liberals get elected, we say, God, why have you forgotten us? Why didn't you answer our prayers? And the only right response in any election is, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King, he is over everybody. And he can be at work through a conservative government and he can be equally at work through a liberal government and my faith and this kingdom are not shaken by any earthly ruler, by any earthly party, by any earthly political movement. And if Jesus and the apostles could thrive under a Jesus-hating government that tried to literally destroy them, then what do we have to complain about, honestly? Like, they didn't need a friendly government for God to do miraculous and incredible things. They didn't need a friendly government for the the world to begin to explode with this gospel. And so if they didn't need a friendly government in order to thrive as the church of Jesus Christ, then we don't need that either. We can enjoy it and be grateful for it. We can pray for it and we can celebrate it if we have it. But if they didn't need it, then we don't either. And if my hope is falling apart based on who's elected, I'm putting my hope in the dead wrong thing. If my hope is is being shaken, if my faith is being shaken based on whoever's in power, I'm looking at the wrong Lord. And I'm looking at the wrong king. Jesus didn't need any of that. And if we believe that God sets the powers in place, which we do, and if we believe that God makes no mistakes, which we do, then our question becomes, okay, if I don't like this person who's in power right now, if I'm concerned about that, Lord, where are you going to be at work here? Just as you were at work through the Roman Caesar who persecuted the early church. Just as you were at work through the pagan Babylonian empire. Just as you were at work through Pharaoh in Egypt. God, what are you up to here? Help me to see it. And help me to be a faithful witness to your truth and to your word no matter what I am facing. No matter what system I am under. Jumping ahead to the book of Acts chapter 5, 27, 29. We like this one. Uh, The apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, in the name of Jesus. They've been told, stop talking about Jesus all over town. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. This one comes up a lot. We must obey God rather than human beings. That's a crucial part of this conversation. This is something, again, that when you look at Daniel's life, Daniel lived out very well. There were times, even as he was engaged with this pagan political empire, that he refused to compromise. He refused to bow down. And when they said, literally, bow down to this idol, no, I won't do that. We want you to eat this food? No, I won't do that. There were times where Daniel said, no, I'm going to stand for what is good, and I'm going to stand for what is right. Daniel lived much earlier than this, but he lived out. I'm going to obey God rather than people. Now, we can take that way too far, And I think what's crucial as we're figuring out kind of what that means for us is that Peter and the apostles are saying we obey God first because Jesus is king, Jesus is Lord, so we obey that first and foremost. But there has to be a good biblical reason to uphold that. We don't get just to say, I don't like what they're doing. Therefore, I'm not going to do it. It's basically, and we'll see this in a, a few scriptures to come, our default towards our governing authorities is that we submit to them. Our default is that. There may be times when we don't, but when we don't, in accordance with the scripture, we we obey God rather than human beings. We follow our earthly rulers in obedience, except when obedience to them would lead us to disobedience to Christ. That's where we're allowed to say, I won't do that. It's not just because you're not my political preference or because I don't agree with this particular rule or because I don't like this thing. We can absolutely stand up and say, I have to obey God first rather than any earthly ruler, but we have to have a biblical reason to back that up. We have to be able to say, obeying the earthly ruler will actually lead me to disobedience to Jesus. And on those terms, I get to choose Jesus every single time. Another story from the book of Acts, Acts 23, 1 to 5. Paul's on trial, and says, Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, my brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God and in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Good leader. I don't like what you said. Punch that guy. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. So this is actually one of the verses that points to the idea that some have speculated that Paul might have been blind or have very poor eyesight. And we see that in a few different places. Uh, We don't know that for sure. But either way, Paul is kind of fiery in the moment, right? God will deal with you, Oh, that's the priest. Oh, that's the priest. Ah, I didn't know that was the priest. Sorry, 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 sorry. But he comes back to the word from Exodus do not speak evil about the ruler of the people. We're not allowed to speak evil about our rulers. Uh oh. Some of us need to take some Facebook posts down. You are allowed to speak truth. You are allowed to push back. You are allowed to challenge. You are allowed to disagree. You're allowed to say, I don't like this. You are not allowed to speak evil of them. However you felt about about the convoy, no one should have been okay with bleep Trudeau signs everywhere. However you felt about it, no one should have been okay with that point from this scripture and other places. We are allowed to disagree, we are allowed to stand up, we are allowed to push back peacefully, we are not allowed to speak evil about the ruler of our people. And again, as we see Daniel, as we see Joseph, as we see others engaging with pagan cultures, uh, they speak of their rulers with honor, even in disagreement, they speak with honor, even as they say, we think you're wrong. And so there's an attitude there that we need to be careful of so that we're not falling into sin. Romans 13, 1 to 5, "'Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, "'for there is no authority "'except that which God has established. "'The authorities that exist,' "'this is earthly governments he's talking about, "'the authorities that exist have been established by God. "'Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority "'is rebelling against what God has instituted, "'and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. "'For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, "'but for those who do wrong.' Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. And so again, God establishes our rulers. God puts rulers in place. That seems very clear to me from scripture. He has done that. He says here, they are his servants. That there is something that God has put rulers in place for order, for justice, for the common good. Someone needs to restrain evil. Someone needs to punish wrongdoers. Someone needs to establish justice and right from wrong and have some order in society. God has put rulers in place for that reason. The one in authority is God's servant for your your good. Rebellion against these authorities. God considers rebellion against him, himself, with the exception, again, of those times when and we are called to do something by our authorities that God calls us to do something different. So there is a time where we'll say, I have to obey God rather than obey people. But again, I think our default is submission. It doesn't mean I have to like or agree with everything, but we are called to submit to the ones that God has put in place because to rebel against them is to rebel against God himself. And again, even in this context, this is like a Roman pagan Christian-hating government he's talking about. That's the context of when he's writing this. He's not talking about a friendly government who likes the Christians. They're out to get the Christians. And so when the Roman government is saying, don't talk about Jesus, the apostles are saying, yeah, we're going to keep talking about Jesus. We have to obey God rather than man. When the Roman government is calling for idol worship and sacrifices, the Christians are saying, no, we're not doing that. To obey the government on that would lead us to disobedience to Christ. And so we're following Christ first and foremost. And yet, if there are times where we're in conflict there, we're always going to choose the way of Christ. And yet, even that evil, idol-worshiping, violent government, Paul is saying that's God, something God has established and it's there for the common good, ultimately. And so the Christians are not to be rebelling against things. We're to submit unless it would cause us to be disobedient to Jesus. few more scriptures here. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious bodies. The power and lordship of Jesus Christ being emphasized and the reminder that our citizenship is in heaven first and foremost. Now, Paul was a Roman citizen, but he's saying my real citizenship is in heaven. That's first and foremost where my attention goes. Most of us here are probably Canadian citizens. Our real citizenship is in heaven. And we're allowed to love Canada. Jesus loves Canada. We're allowed to care about our nation. We're allowed to seek the good of our nation. We're allowed to be passionate about our country as long as we remember our primary citizenship is in heaven. And if our heavenly citizenship ever comes into conflict with our earthly citizenship, we always lean towards our heavenly citizenship. Canada has to take second, always heaven first. And that's a political statement. That's a political statement. We don't need to worry about it so much in Canada uh, for the time being, anyway. Who knows what the future brings? But to say, hey, Canada, we love you. We're submissive to you. We are praying for you. We want your good. But ultimately, you're actually not the main focus of my life. The main focus will always be the kingdom of heaven. The main Lord will always be Jesus Christ as Lord. And if there's ever a conflict between the two, sorry, Canada. I love you, but I love Jesus more. I love you, but I love the kingdom of heaven more. Galatians 5, and 23, the fruit of the spirit. The results of being filled with the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. As Christ followers, these are to be things that are increasingly showing up in our lives. And I've noticed sometimes when Christians get engaged with politics, it often very quickly becomes a discussion about truth or about what is right and what is wrong, or what is good and what is evil. And that's good. That's part of what we're supposed to do. But I've just noticed that when we start engaging in political discussions, a lot of this stuff gets thrown out the window. In the name of truth, in the name of standing for what's right, we often lose the love, we lose the peace, we lose the kindness we lose the gentleness we lose the self control my concern and i'd say this is a big concern is that when christians start to engage in political conversations they often start sounding exactly like the politicians and we are called to be holy we're called to be different martin luther king had maybe some of the most profound political influence that we've seen in america and he wasn't a politician he was a preacher and he was an activist for civil rights but Martin Luther King also understood that we fight with different weapons as Christ followers. And he would stand up and he would preach and he would persuade and he would, he would protest for sure and he would march, always peacefully. And when people hurled abuse at him, he responded with blessing And when people responded with hate, he responded with love. He said at one point, after his home had been firebombed by racists, he said publicly, whoever did this, I love you, I would rather die than hate you. And with love and with the gospel and with the example of Jesus, again, slowly over time, not just got laws passed, but transformed the heart of a culture because the ways of the kingdom of heaven are different than the ways of the kingdom of this world. And if we're going to engage in political conversations, we have to look holy. We have to look different. If we look just like the worldly politicians, then we're missing something. And so can you imagine if Christ's followers were actually in such a place where they were the boldest truth tellers on the planet, and yet were also the most loving and the most joyful and the most peaceful and the most kind and the most gentle. And I just have to believe that that must have been exactly what Jesus was like. He must have been something of a paradox, because he spoke these bold and sometimes hard truths, and yet there was something about him where the the tax collectors and the prostitutes came flocking to him. And I think it's because it wasn't just truth that I'm going to punch you in the face with, but it was truth wrapped up in the fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit, in the fruit of the Spirit that shows up. So we don't get to, in the name of truth, throw out the fruit of the Holy Spirit. If we're not walking in these fruits, then we are out of step with the Spirit. Even if the truth we believe is right, they both need to work together. All right, we are almost done. First Timothy 2, 1 to 2. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, and intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live, live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. So we are called very clearly to pray for those in power. How often are you praying for Prime Minister Trudeau? I hope it's a lot because it's easy to grumble and it's easy to vent and it's easy to, to be angry and it's easy to post things, but we are called to pray for them. And if we're not praying for them, we are failing. The, the, there's no caveat there of praying for them if you like them or if you agree with them. It just says pray for them. Pray for them, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Titus 3, 1 and 2. Remind the people, that's us, to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always be gentle towards everyone. Man, I think they should read this before they let anybody post anything on social media read this first sign off on it that you've understood it and then you can post whatever it is you want to post there's that word again subject to rulers submission to the authorities we don't love that word but it's in here kind of a lot to be obedient to them to be ready to do whatever is good so good standing for what is good to slander no one including the rulers And then to be peaceable and considerate and always be gentle toward everyone. And so it's a lot easier to speak the truth bluntly and harshly. It's a lot harder to figure out a way to do that considerately and gently. And yet sometimes the way of Jesus is in fact harder and we just need to figure that out. 1 Peter 2, 13, 17, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend themselves. It's in there again. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor God. The emperor. Again, the emperor who hates Christians at this time, who worships idols at this time, who offers blood sacrifices at this time, who is out to get the apostles at this time. Paul says, honor him doesn't mean agree with him. It doesn't mean you have to to sit around and just wait for him to kill you. But you will speak of him respectfully. You will pray for him. You will submit to him, except in the areas where submitting to him causes you to be disobedient to Christ. It's God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. There's something about this submission that is part of our Christian witness. that, That There's something about this that we show the world what God's goodness looks like. And so we are, are always walking down that road and trying to figure out what does it mean to walk in respect and honor? And what does that look like when we disagree? What does that look like when we feel like we need to step up, when we need to take a stand, when we need to speak truth to power? How are we going to do that in a way that is consistent with all of these scriptures? I'm going to jump ahead just because we're running out of time. 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or anything in the world. And let's just be really, really clear, the earthly governments, the earthly politicians, the earthly political parties are all of this world. That's just what they are. It's the world's solution to try and solve the world's problems. And so we just acknowledge that first and foremost, that none of these parties or people are the solution. Jesus is the solution. And that's not to say he can't work through a politician or he can't work through a government, but we just want to be very clear because in our world, in our culture, politics are king, right? It fills our news feeds, it fills the the headlines, it fills the news cycles. Everything in North American culture revolves primarily around politics, Politics drives everything. It consumes everything. And it is so easy for us to get sucked into that current and just carried along in that world. And so we do not love the world or anything in the world. And when we use that scripture, often we're meaning like specific sins. We don't love this sin or we don't love that sin. And that is true. But it also means we don't love the world's politics. We don't get sucked into that. If we are going to engage, we're going to engage differently in a kingdom-minded sort of way. We're going to do this the way Jesus would call us to do this. Last verse. Come on up, worship team. Revelation eleven fifteen. 15. Speaking of the end... The promise is the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. A day is coming when all the kingdoms of this world will bow to Jesus. That day is coming. The day is coming. That is part of our hope, that the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of this world will all come together. We took time last year to walk through the book of Revelation, and you might remember that picture from the end of the book, that heaven and earth come together, right? There's a uniting... And we are looking forward with anticipation to that day. We acknowledge we are not at that day yet. We are not living in the world where the kingdom of heaven and any earthly kingdom are are fully united. And so as exiles in this world, we are looking to live this out. We are looking to to be that force for good. We are looking to speak the truth. We're looking to stand for what's right. If there is a time to speak truth to power, we will. And if there's a time where we say, I have to obey God rather than man's government, we will. And if there's a time where we need to protest or, or find a way to, to take a stand against something, we will absolutely do that. But just very quickly, in terms of a, a summary of these things, and again, you can get these later, I'll whip through these fast. We would acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and King. We acknowledge we are called to act for the good of our community. We are called to speak the truth to power. We pay our taxes, hallelujah. Hallelujah. We remember that Jesus did not come to set up a political kingdom. We honor that every earthly authority is established by God, even if we don't like them. We do not obey unbiblical commandments from our government. We will say, I obey God rather than you in those moments. We do not speak evil of our rulers. Submission to our rulers is our default. To rebel against our rulers is to rebel against God himself. Our commitment to truth cannot be divorced from the fruit of the spirit in our lives. Our primary citizenship is in heaven, not Canada. We pray for our rulers constantly. We are submissive, obedient, peaceful, and non-slanderous. We remember that earthly politics are of the world and they do not consume us. And we look forward in faith to the day when all earthly kingdoms will be fully Christ. I know there's a lot there. But I think that is the sweet spot, I really do. I think that is the spot of being faithful to our call to follow after Jesus and to say, as we engage with these things, what are kingdom ways in which we can do this? I'm gonna share one more quick story, just to, this is gonna challenge you and get in your heads a little bit and it's gonna give you something to think about. But Greg Boyd tells the story and he was talking about Christians and politics and he said, we gotta find kingdom ways to do what is right. And so he was talking about being pro-life and he said, for the record, I am pro-life and, and I would stand for life as it relates to abortion. And he says, for most evangelical Christians, conservative Christians, they are also pro-life. And yet he said, for most Christians, that commitment ends pretty much with who you vote for. Like that's where your, your activism stops. And so, you know, they're not actively engaging in helping out at the pregnancy care center. They're not giving money to support things. They're not doing these things. It often just ends with, I have a political position and I vote on it. And he just said, you know what? A vote doesn't really cost you anything. And to follow in the way of Jesus usually costs us something because Jesus said, you're going to have to take up a cross and you're going to have to follow. And so he tells this story of a lady he knew and she was in her 50s and a family friend a 16-year-old girl got pregnant. And her parents were very conservative Christians and they were upset that she got pregnant and so they kicked her out of the house. And so this lady in her 50s said, I can't let this 16-year-old pregnant girl wander the street. And so she invited her into her home thinking it was just going to be temporary. And the girl was thinking about having an abortion. She didn't know what else to do. The father wasn't involved. Her parents were disowning her. And so she was thinking about having an abortion. This lady was pro-life. And she said, I would really like you to have this baby, and if you do, I will help. I will be here. You can live here. You can stay here. And so the girl decided to have the baby, and she stayed with the woman. And the woman took care of the girl and the baby, and then she would watch the baby so the girl could go back to high school. And then she would watch the baby so the girl could go to college and and get ready to build a life for her and her baby. And at one point, the older woman took out another mortgage on her house just to help pay for all of these things. And then eventually, the girl graduated from college and got a good job and was able to move out on her own. So this is, you know, five, six years later. And the lady was there just, you know, with a new mortgage now, like at 55. And, and yet, with great blessings, sent this girl out into a life that she helped happen and that she had sacrificed greatly for And Greg Boyd says, that lady's allowed to call herself pro-life. Because it didn't end with who she voted for or something she posted online. She put her money where her mouth was. She sacrificed in the way of Jesus. And she said, like, that's a kingdom way to stand for life. Where we're not just putting all of our hope in a political system or all of our hope. She saved a life in this story. And how many more lives, how many more generations to come from this family line? And she walked in the way of Jesus as she did that. So, when we're talking about finding kingdom ways to do that, it's not just about engaging in the political system. We can do that, and I hope I've made that clear. But there are other ways Jesus calls us to engage, to stand for what we believe in, in ways that are actually impacting life by life, person by person, along the way. We're going to worship before we go today. Would you stand to your feet, please? Fix your eyes on Jesus, and let's praise him together.